Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Fish. Before we get going, I just want to let you know that we have a very exciting guest on this week. Andy unfortunately was away and is actually furious he was away because he missed out on the absolute tornado of comedy that is Reese Darby. You probably know Reese for his roles as Murray the Manager on Flight of the Concords or as Nigel Billingsley from the Jumanji movies, or perhaps you listen to his absolutely brilliant podcast about the mysteries of the universe called The Cryptid Factor, which he hosts with his buddies Buttons and a doofus called Dan. But what you may not have seen, if you live in the UK, is Reese playing his greatest role yet, Steed Bonnet, gentleman pirate, in the sitcom Our Flag Means Death. This is such a great series. It came out last year on HBO Max, but it's only just come to the UK on BBC Two. And it's all about the real life story of Steed Bonnet, who decided to give up his entire life and become a gentleman pirate of the seas. He befriends Blackbeard, who's played by the absolute genius comedy director Taika Waititi. And you can watch it now in the UK on BBC Two every Wednesday at 10 p.m. Or if you're impatient like me, just head straight to BBC iPlayer and you can watch the entire series in one bingey go. Anyway, it was so great having Reese back on the show. You can find the previous episode in the Fish Archives if you want to hear his first time here with us. Uh, Andy wasn't on that show either. Poor guy can't get a break. But we hope you enjoy it and then make sure to watch Our Flag Means Death immediately afterwards. Okay, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast this week coming to you from four mysterious locations around the globe. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with James Harkin, Anna Tashinsky, and joining us once again, it is the return of our very special guest, Reese Darby. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Reese. My fact is that pirate Steed Bonnet invented the idea of walking the plank. Ooh. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. That's, that's a pretty big invention, <laughs> I would say, in, in the world of pirating. <laughs> I don't use it in my day-to-day life. It's pretty niche, isn't it? It's putting together two things that already exist, walking and planks. It's not like, he hasn't come up with anything new there, has he? I know, but if you're even a child and you dress up as a pirate, one of the first things you learn in your entire life is that they walk the plank. I mean, he is, he's, what a legacy. That's right. Is it true, though? <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it this way. It's more of a myth, really, that he, uh, he came up with it. <laughs> That's fine. That's what we deal in. Um... It's a Dan fact, you know. <laughs> yeah. Nice. You know the show. You know the show. So, Well, he might have done, right? He might have done. Some people say that he did. I actually believe he did because even though it's out there as a myth, I believe knowing Steed as I do, playing the role of Steed for two seasons now, um, that he would have come up with it in, in reality because the whole idea behind walking the plank is they blindfold the uh, the person and they make them walk it and so then they get away with not being accused of murder because mm. that person has killed themselves. The captain has said, all right, walk along that plank, will you? Uh, All the right. best. 
And, yeah. and the guy's like, uh, what? Hey, what's happening? Hey, what? Walk along here. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, you can imagine it as I'm, I'm describing it here. Oh, oh, I've got a blindfold on. What, 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 what's, where's this plank going? You know, and then... That's the shark. Very good. So he wouldn't want to stab he, someone or shoot someone. No. He wants to do it. He wants to be slightly away from the action, right? And say, you did it yourself. Absolutely, very uncomfortable with the idea of, of killing someone. Why are you hitting yourself? Why are you yes, why are you punching yes, yourself? Yes. Why are you letting yourself get eaten by sharks? <laughs> exactly, that's it. Is that getting you into heaven? I was uncomfortable with killing people, so I just let them kill themselves. Mm. He's still he's walking a fine line, isn't he? Yeah. Morally, <laughs> he's walking a fine plank for sure. But I think <laughs> yeah, I think that's the point. That's the it's a moral issue, and so he can think to himself. Oh, I didn't kill him. He killed himself. He, he walked off that plank that I designed. And it's quite an ingenious idea, really, to think that, especially back in those days, you could make someone kill themselves without you having to actually get your hands dirty. Yeah. yeah. Which was, we should say, like seven, a golden age of piracy. 1718, was it? He died? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Um, mm-hmm. I think. So 1700, 17 to 1730 was the golden age. He was right in the middle of it. Wasn't he very short-lived, really, as a pirate? For a pirate who is quite famous, yeah. it was quite a brief career, wasn't two it? Two years. Uh, less <laughs> than that, I think it was run. like a year and a half. I think we should just quickly pricey this guy in his entirety. This was someone who was a really well-to-do character. He was living very rich. He had a wife. He had some kids. And then he just decided as part of ultimately what was, I guess, a midlife crisis or he was dealing with trauma of a quite difficult childhood, just left his family, bought a ship and just said, I'm now a pirate, got a crew, named the ship The Revenge and just started sailing. And he paid his staff. You know, he paid the pirates. He was, he was, as you say, a gentleman pirate with zero abilities. Didn't he not tell the pirates that they were going to be pirates? I read somewhere that he kind of brought them on. He got all of these guys to be his staff. And then only when they were at sea, he said, oh, by the way, you're pirates. This isn't just a fun cruise. This is a... <laughs> that sounds like him as well. <laughs> Knowing him being in his shoes absolutely yeah he, he definitely he bought the ship it was uh it was already called the revenge i believe and he liked the name of it uh mm. and it was actually quite a common name for ships back then and then yeah he installed this is the really really fun stuff he he installed a library on the on the boat so he built <laughs> a library because he loved his books he, he wanted to leave home and leave his uh, wife and life uh but he didn't want to leave his books Something you might do, Dan. So he brought his entire collection of his books and put them on the ship. <laughs> I reckon, Dan, I reckon you would go being a pirate with your books, of course, but also probably your Ben Elton collection. Absolutely. Well, you're yeah. signed. Everything signed you've got in your house would come with yeah, you. Yeah, I would need memorabilia to yeah. sort of, yeah, wow Blackbeard with, you know. Yeah, no, actually, Ben Elton <laughs> did, I think, actually hold this particular bit of tissue. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I was actually going to say it's pretty, it was pretty hard on his wife with the book stealing not only has she lost her husband but he's nicked all the bloody books but actually in your case dan it would be quite a relief probably for finale yeah it'd be like the ultimate marry kundo or whatever that book was called it's like yeah yeah, you know step four make your husband a pirate (laughs) lose lose all um thank god yeah and so in, in in the series as well there's the relationship uh the fact that he in real life meets blackbeard the most famous of all the pirates and What's crazy as well is, I assume Blackbeard must have existed for a long time, but he had a two-year run as well. 
That was it. Yeah. Blackbeard's pirating years were two years. It's amazing. You lived pretty fast and loose as a pirate, didn't you? It probably wasn't the safest line of work to go into, if we're being honest. No. Um, no. They were like the Liz Truss of pirates, weren't they, those guys? <laughs> literally... That's the most flattering comparison Liz Truss has ever got. Uh, but yeah, Blackbeard and him had quite a weird relationship. It's kind of the relationship to a needy loser uh, and they're the real cool guy of the open seas because Steed wasn't that good at pirating especially at first was he? No so I mean you know there's the reality through the knowledge we have from various accounts and history and then there's the you know, obviously the, the fictional version which my show is so without getting too confused about which which is real and which isn't because the real reports you know are, are, are sketchy at best as well but when you look at it it kind of makes sense that you know something happened between the two of them even if it was just a friendship, Blackbeard was fascinated by this guy because he looked glorious in his outfits. He had these little winker picker shoes and glorious coats and, and various things like that. He was a fancy man. And Blackbeard must have gone, what the hell are you doing in this job? Because, you know, they were all desperate. They didn't want to become pirates. That was like the only life they had to go into because uh, of, of their circumstance. And so he, here's this guy who's like, I want to be part of this too. And he's absolutely not supposed to be there. And he was wounded. And I think instead of just letting, like killing him or getting rid of him, I think there was a massive fascination. I think maybe if you look at Blackbeard wanting to see the other side of how the other side lives, like probably a lot of people did back in those days, you're either ridiculously poor and haven't got anything going on or you're the aristocracy and never the twain shall meet. And so when they do, I think that's when you've got this really interesting, like, oh, how can I become you? Or how can I learn from you? Or how can I steal your ideas to make me better? Wow. So he yeah. was like the Louis Theroux of the <laughs> pirating world. <laughs> Spending a few weeks yeah. observing, getting all the Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Perhaps, because he could have just killed him. He could have just got yeah. rid of him. I mean, this guy back in history was not... He, He's not as portrayed as capable as I am uh, in the show, you know. And that's saying something. <laughs> but I reckon it's, this is a really interesting way of doing history, right? Because we don't have much information about Steve Bonnet. We have little bits here and there. But Reese, you've lived as him for two years in the show, pretty mm. much. And I reckon you've got a really good insight into what he might have been thinking and what he might have done and stuff. Yeah. Why the hell he did it? That's the, always the great mystery, yeah. isn't it? It's always portrayed as this huge midlife crisis, which makes sense. It's the fantasy mm. that every eight-year-old has that we grow out of by the time we're 12. <laughs> That's not midlife, is it? Eight <laughs> years old? <laughs> I feel like when you have a midlife crisis, you revert back to those tragic fantasies right. you had as a child yeah, that yeah. are unrealistic. And it was portrayed in, um, yeah. you know, that the famous book of pirates, which is where we get basically all of our pirate knowledge by a mysterious person called Captain Charles Johnson, who was written a few years later. And his portrayal, which is often what is repeated, is that he was trying to bear the awful situation of having a nagging wife. But yeah, Reese, you've been him. Why did mm. he do it? I really, I really hope that you, James, and Anna are subtly trying to get Reese to sort of channel Steed, yeah. and he comes through now. <laughs> Reese is no longer here, and we've <laughs> get English dandy. Steed is just on the show. Look, I, I definitely think there was a, a midlife crisis situation going on. If you look back at the accounts, but also he had this life that he didn't. Uh, necessarily want. He was born into aristocracy. And at that, at that time, piracy would, had just kicked in and it was this ridiculous, adventurous, out-at-sea life that was pretty much the opposite of what he's doing. And he's never even been to sea, by the way. 
this guy. So he's imagining, oh, wow, what would that be like? And of course, anyone who's really intensely into their book reading has a great imagination. And I think he just one day went, look, I've actually got the means to to change this. And he probably had one massive fight with the, the wife that he obviously he wasn't really getting on with and went, right, that's it, I'm, I'm out, I'm out. And in the middle of the night, you know, he, he sorted this out and just took off on a whim. And I think that, you know, he probably thought uh, that he had the means to, uh, to get away with it because he was a chiefly person. He was someone who was mm-hmm. sort of high, high up there. And so uh, he, pro- he probably didn't even imagine he was going to get into trouble. It certainly seemed like he didn't. It's confidence, blind confidence. Yeah. <laughs> I once walked a plank oh. in a virtual reality video game. Okay. Right. And this is why I was thinking about how these guys were blindfolded. So we weren't blindfolded when we did this, but you're walking the mm. plank on the top of a massive building. And then the idea is you got to the end and then you jumped off and then you were in virtual reality and you thought you were dying and then you kept falling, falling, falling and then you hit the floor and you absolutely shit yourself because you thought you were dead, but actually you're in virtual reality. But what I thought was it was more scary because I could see what was happening, whereas these guys were blindfolded. Yes. Mm. So is the idea that they wouldn't know when they're getting to the end of the plank, they'll just keep walking and that's it? Or... Must yes, be. well, let's, let's, let's have a, a chat about that. I mean, I think, <laughs> why do they need to be blindfolded for a start? Because, you know, they know they're out at sea, they're on a boat. All right, step up, step up onto the edge yeah. here. Oh, this is, well, I can feel that this is the edge of the boat. No, no, it's not. No, you're going, <laughs> you're going into one of the rooms. We're going to have a little party. No, no, I can feel the wind <laughs> in my face here. No, 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 it's fine. Walk, just keep walking. Just there's a there's a plank there. All oh, right, yes, yes. Oh, well, this is going out into the sea, isn't it? No, no, no. This is a little. It's actually a bridge towards the bar. I've got a cocktail here waiting for you, Larry. Okay, okay. Well, it's very windy. Yes, well, that we're all blowing. <laughs> Blow. Oh, that doesn't, that feels, feels like normal wind, not you. <laughs> know what your wind's like, Larry. Ah, oh, cheeky bugger. Just keep walking down there, mate. And uh, I know, I've, I've really got into that. But, uh, you know, I think... <laughs> I've forgotten what we were asking. <laughs> but I actually think that's true because it means you couldn't have, like, surprise parties on a boat, could you? Because every time you put a blindfold on oh, and yeah. you're walked into a room and they say it's a party... <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point we've got to. In history, there's been no surprise parties on pirate ships for that reason. <laughs> Happy birthday! <laughs> <Whoa>! <laughs> It actually doesn't make any sense that they would be able to walk a plank while out in the rough seas, blindfolded Mm. and shaking with nerves. I mean, you fall off. You don't get to the end of that plank, do you? No, such a good point. You're falling Mm. off straight away. Also, is this where we got the diving board from? Yeah. Ah, yes, I was just thinking. (laughs) Imagine the cockiness Mm. of someone that you've sentenced to death who walks blindfolded to the end of the plank, jumps (laughs) off and does a triple backward somersault. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. That's a legend. What a death. What a death. (laughs) Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is... James. Okay, my fact this week is that goats like it when you smile at them, but only if you approach them from the right hand <laughs> side. How can that possibly be true? Why? Could it, it was be true? Um, the findings of a study in 2018 mm-hmm. uh, at the Buttercup Sanctuary for Goats in Kent. Oh. And what they did was they put photos of humans 
men and women, uh, black and white, and they put one on the left and one on the right, and one of them was smiling and one of them wasn't, and the goats always went to the smiling one, but only when it was on the right-hand side. When it was on the left-hand side, they couldn't wow. give a shit. They would just they would randomly go to one or the other. But when it was on the right-hand side, they always went to it. Uh, and two things here. One, not many animals care whether humans are smiling or not. Uh, we know that dogs do. We know that horses do. Uh, that's because they're domesticated animals. Uh, and this is one of the first other animals that we found right. that actually cares if humans smile. And the other thing is that perhaps why are they only bothered about the right-hand side? Well, it could be the way that their brain processes mm -hmm. things. So maybe they're processing emotions on one side of the brain or visual things on one side of the brain. We're not really sure. Why do they use a black and white photo? Can you not fork out in the budget for colour photography? <laughs> do they see colour? Do they see colour? Oh, that's a great. That's question, a great Dan. question. God, well, Reese, you, you're from you know you know goats almost as well as you know Steed Bonnet. Um, do you think they yeah. see colour? <laughs> I would like to think they do, especially my ones. When I when I turn up to feed them, mm -hmm. um, I always come in from the left, and <laughs> they're smiling. Uh, I'm smiling, so, but I <laughs> but they. Can, <laughs> you always make sure to smile. That's part of it. <laughs> I, I'm just imagining yeah, that right. I must be smiling because I'm happy to see them. I don't see them a hell of a lot because they're in New Zealand, but I spend time with them when I'm there, of course. They are they are emotionally intelligent. I hadn't realised um, that they were to this extent. So they did a study where researchers recorded goats making certain noises, noises when they were happy and noises when they were sad. So this did involve the researchers making the goats happy and sad. So they'd make them happy by sort of giving them food and then they'd make them sad. But And this is sort of like really minimal level of sadness. They'd isolate them from their herd for five minutes or they'd get a goat to watch another goat eat when that goat didn't have Ooh. much food oh wow uh, apparently the but i know goats and that is very sad for them that's, <laughs> yeah. that's tragic the two things Torture. they really care about are being together <laughs> mm -hmm. and eating oh really that's yeah. it oh. oh yeah that's it and and to have fun they climb so they love to get on top of things mm -hmm. and they love running around but they always they much prefer to be doing all that sort of stuff to right. Okay, well, and, maybe uh, this was like torture for them, perhaps. And also, been, yeah. also, Anna, I've been in a restaurant with you when one of us has got our food <laughs> and yours hasn't quite arrived yet. And the look on your face. I make some pretty weird yeah. noises. I can't deny that, okay? I make some weird goat-like bleating sounds. Um, anyway, the noises that goats make are pretty much indistinguishable to us uh, when they're happy and sad in those situations, except probably, Reese, if you own goats, you pick up on it. But if you play mm. those sounds to their fellow goats, just audio recordings, their heart rates will stay normal and they'll be all chilled out when they hear the happy sounds. But when they hear the almost identical-sounding anxious sounds, then their heart rates kind of shoot up so they're feeling oh, this wow. empathy on behalf of this other mm. goat. Wow. Yeah. Reese, have you ever, this is a uh, leaning into a myth here, but I'll just be curious. Have you ever <sighs> dipped your feet into salt water and then let goats lick your feet? <sighs> no. No? Okay. I've, well, I'd be, I well, I have taken the goats for a walk down on the That's the, the thing. Beach, I know you've got a beach near you. have been through salt water. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, next time you're back in New Zealand, give it a go, because I'd be curious to hear whether or not this hurts. This was a, a, a sort of myth that's been in books for a long time, and possibly it was tried once or twice, who knows, where the ancient Romans were said to have used a thing called tickle torture. And the idea Ooh. was that you would get someone, you would soak their feet in salt water, and then the salt um, would uh, then be licked by a thirsty ghost. Ghost? 
Took a turn. They love something. Oh no, I just checked my notes down and all this is actually about ghosts. <laughs> all this stuff I've been saying about goats. It's ghosts like it if you smile yes, at them. Always approach a ghost from the right hand side. Yeah. Now it's making sense. Yeah. Um, so apparently that's if, you, if a goat licks your feet because they have really rough tongues that the torture and because they're mm. so thirsty mm. and the salt makes them thirstier, they keep licking and then they rip your feet off and that would be a that would be yeah. a method of torture back in uh... rip your feet off their tongues aren't made of tits, no sorry they, they would they would they would slowly <laughs> like um like a lollipop lick their way through your feet oh yeah yeah i tend to not let their mouths too close <laughs> to my uh body bits okay because they have teeth and everything you know and and they're very they're always wanting to to nibble and mm. so they nibble on my clothes they pull my garments and i certainly can't see myself getting my naked feet out and dangling them in front of their uh, mm. faces with, with salt. Do they then? Another question about your goats. Do, I mean, do they urinate on themselves and each, and each other or themselves? So first of all, they'll, they'll wee all over themselves to attract a female. And it looks kind of cool. Billy goats shove their heads right between their legs because they want to wee in their beards because I guess that gathers up the, the smell better. And they wheel over them and then they will go to the lady who can tell that he's up for up for a shag. But then he tests her urine as well to make sure that she's eligible, to make sure that she's actually on heat. And so she will squat down and he'll put his head between her legs and then she'll wheel over him. And then they do this, wow. the curl up the lips, the flame and response, which is where if you see a goat expose its lip like curl up its top lip it's got all these receptors in it yeah james is doing it right now it's very attractive look actually uh it's got receptors in it that pick up whether the urine has the right hormones in it that says this woman is ready to be fertilized by you and so it's very very wee based courting process it's sexy Mm. stuff i know nothing of that because i only have boy goats Mm. oh really Uh... yeah well when you have both you know you're you're into mating and if you've got females then you then you're into milking so i've only got Mm. male cast-offs which you know the boy goats are are only good for either meat or pets yeah oh wow so they're never aroused your goats they never need to know themselves they've never aroused and i've never even seen them wee oh they must they must no never never seen them wee that might mind you you know minor pedigree so i don't think they do Yeah, good point. I've got to be honest. I've heard that about certain breeds. They just explode with <laughs> urine at their death, don't they? It's a Henry VIII yeah. situation. Well, sometimes I see them hiding, and I and I'm oh, and I come yeah. to the pen, and I think, oh, what's oh, oh you having a wee? Are you? And and then I can hear, oh, don't no, don't come in here. <laughs> I'm in here, and that kind of thing. And so I wonder, there's probably something happening there, and then they just come through. Oh, oh hello, Dad. What, what's what's going on today? <laughs> Dad. Do they call you, know. you Dad? Dad? Yeah, they call Dad. Dad. <laughs> I didn't see you coming, Dad. You came on the left-hand side, did you? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was, I was, uh, was going to check on you guys. Do you want to go for another walk down to the beach? Oh, no, I'm fine. Alexander's just behind the pen there. Don't go, go around there. He's just doing something. Don't worry about him. I don't, are you sure you've got goats, not sort of pantomime actors in goat costumes? <laughs> uh, here's, here's an interesting thing about goats. So you said, like, pedigree goats. You can get them. 
you can get really good goats, uh, especially for milking and stuff. Uh, and in order to get those, you might need a stud. So you might need a really good male goat who's going to have sex with lots of females. Um, but the thing is that they can only have so many. They can only have sex so many times, right? There's only so many hours in the day that you can mm. do that. And so recently they've come up with a new way of... Basically what they do is they put some genes into a goat which changes its testicles so they're effectively the testicles of another goat. What? And so this goat, which isn't the normal stud, mm -hmm. can have sex with a female and the, um, the offspring will be the offspring of the original stud, even though the stud's just at home having oh a coffee. Oh my God, or, you know, really? really? That's like the Handmaid's Tale, kind of. Where you think you're shagging one person, but you're actually shagging the more fertile person. It's like it's actually a less dark version of The Handmaid's Tale uh, yeah. without the <laughs> feminist and dystopian undertones. The Milkmaid's Tale. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wonder if that's quite um, demoralising, though, for the goat who the person said, your testes aren't good enough, we're just going to shove these other blokes on you who you've always been intimidated by anyway. I don't think they even know they're goats. <sighs> Probably true. Goats? Of course they know they're goats. <laughs> Do they? Yeah. Okay. Very good. Because I've tried to take them out. You know, we've gone into town and my guys have gone, no, no, we, we can't. We're goats. We can't go in there. We're not going <laughs> to. We won't be allowed in there, Dad. Uh, can, I, can, I can you take the blindfold off me? <laughs> no, just, just you be, you'll be fine, Alexander. We're just, we're going into town. I, I, I can sense there's someone coming up, up to me on the left-hand side. I can sense it. <laughs> He's asking me for ID, Dad. What do I do? <laughs> Dad, I don't have any ID. I, I'm a goat. I told him I'm a goat. Look, I'm sorry. He doesn't know he's a goat. If you could just let him... I do know I'm a goat, Dad. I told you. And get this blindfold off me. I saw a photo earlier today of... It was a tree which looked like it was growing goats. There was like an apple tree. Oh, yeah. There was like 30 yeah. goats. They love climbing trees. They were just trees. all sitting yeah. in this tree and I didn't think they had the dexterity they do. to do it. Haven't you? Yeah, they're, they're big on... Yeah. They do like climbing trees and they like climbing, but often if you see those photos, some places will... Fake it. Um, just fake it for tourists, basically. Right. They'll kind of tie the goats into trees and then say, look, all these goats have climbed this tree and they're all free will. Because at the end of the day, they need the tourists to come and take the photos, but the goats aren't going to do what they want. Sometimes they'll climb and sometimes they yeah, won't. Right. So they, yeah, they kind of fake it sometimes. Oh, that's, that's the shocking reality of, of tourism in some of these places. <laughs> I'm but, afraid so. Um, the other thing is there's a the theory that goats used to be birds. And that's, <laughs> Sorry. That's why they're in the trees a lot, because they are reverting back to their previous life. Is that a, and are there scientific papers written supporting this theory, or is this just some bloke in your local pub? No, I'm just I'm pulling it up now. Okay, here it is. Scientific <laughs> theories. Yeah, yeah. Goats. Yeah, goats used to be birds. Here it is. Uh, goats. <laughs> goats used to be birds. Here it is in bold letters. Absolutely incredible. Wow, that's two pages, and it's signed at the bottom. Two there pages. <laughs> There's your evidence. They believe they're flying. That's the closest thing they can get to going back mm -hmm. to their old life as a bird by flying. And then they'll end up in the trees. And you'll you'll often hear them um, uh, twerking. Twerking. No twerping. <laughs> you should see him twerk. He's amazing. <laughs> What's the actual word that birds make? Uh, tweet. Uh, tweet. Tweeting. Oh, chirping. tweeting. 
I think T- chirping. I think that's where I'm getting confused. You mash those I'm two confusing, together. Yeah, I'm mashing those two to, mm. together and, and coming up with twerking. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think that's how chirping. twerking was born. Actually, wasn't it? <laughs> that's originally how it was created. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's that's absolutely amazing. Uh, thank you for sharing that fact. Another another goat fact. Yeah. Which is isn't as amazing as that, but is true, is that we've never talked about myotonic goats. And I think they always deserve a mention. The myotonic Ooh. fainting goats. Oh, Don't, we've oh mentioned yes. On this podcast, they're, uh, they're a breed in Tennessee that basically have an anomaly in their genes where when they panic, if they're approached from the left, for instance, or not smiling, <laughs> or there's a loud noise, something like that, then they try to escape. But what this does is contracts their muscles so they stiffen up completely and then just kind of fall over onto their side. And it is quite comical to see. If you've never seen it, it's bizarre. I've seen videos of that. Yeah, it's very. Do we know why it happens, Anna? Because it feels like it would die out quite quickly. Uh, Well, I think it was only died in, as it were, quite recently um, through breeding. So I don't think it would have any evolutionary purpose. And you're right; in the wild, they probably wouldn't survive very long. But they are now bred. Um, from the same batch that have this. I think Steve Bonnet suffered from that same uh, gene anomaly. (laughs) Just sort of stiffening up and fainting at the sight of any sort of danger. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. And he overcame it. Did he? Well, how did he overcome it? Well, you know, just really sort of, uh, you know, getting with a really tough pirate and learning how to proper be a pirate. You know, I think goats, (laughs) if you you put those little fainty ones in Mm. with, uh, you know, some real hardcore proper rustic goats uh that probably learn the ways and and would become more goaty yeah less fainty billy goat blackbeard yeah. takes them under their wing um, <laughs> yeah that's right what you can also do is you can deprive them of water which bizarrely cures this problem there are other problems if you don't get the <laughs> yeah. water aren't there? so it's, it's a very fine balance to strike but they've they're kind of useful now because myotonia is also a thing in humans like sudden muscle seizures some mm. people have that and the jumping frenchman of maine are they called or something like that i remember really i didn't know i, so. I don't know about them are they yeah a group of i think there was a there was a group of french immigrants in maine i think mm-hmm. uh, and they had this kind of thing where as soon as you shocked them they would just faint. Oh, really? Oh. Wow. Wow. Yeah. How long are they stiff for? How long do they, like, does it just slowly wear off? Yeah, I think so. It's the goats. Yeah, they just kind yeah. of wake up, don't they, the goats? It's like a faint. Ah. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen the it's videos. A, it's bizarre. We've all seen the videos. <laughs> it's bizarre. Imagine <laughs> if, if people did do that. In gen- it's a very bizarre trait, isn't it? Um, yeah, it would make the start of the 100 metres not much good, would it? Because as soon as the bang goes off, everyone just faints. It would be a race to see who came yeah. round the quickest. Yeah. That's why the, yeah. the Goat yeah. Olympics have never taken off. Yet we call yet we call the best in the world the goats. What's going on? Yeah. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that Tintin's hair originally lay flat on his head until it got blown upwards in an early comic strip and it never came back down. Wow. <laughs> and that's, that's why he's got that famous stupid quiff. I think it's stupid. a brilliant it's quiff. Iconic. How dare you? Yeah. What are okay, you talking everyone's about? Everyone's entitled to You're their own stupid. opinion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Reese is sporting a sort of half Tintinian quiff yeah. at the moment, so should be careful. Yeah. But yeah, it's, and it doesn't—it's not mentioned anywhere in the comic. It's just the very first Tintin comic that was released. This is in January 1929, 
and it was Tintin au pays de Soviet, Tintin in the land of the Soviets. And about sort of 10 pages in, in the version I was reading, he drops out of a tree, much like a goat, and falls into a convertible car sitting underneath it deliberately and drives the car away. And in the next plate, you see his hair pushed up and then you follow the story through and it just never drops again. So wow. weird. Did they, mm. did they do it on purpose? Was this a subconscious thing? We'll never know. We'll never well, know. Well, I actually have the book here, of course, because... Oh, I'm wow, a you do. Big Tintin oh, fan. Cool. And, and I looked at this, and uh, yeah, you're right. We can, we can have a look here. Uh, I think it's, as you say, uh, around page um, 10. Yes. So this, this, is, yeah, this is an audio format. Yeah, but you've, you've all got imaginations at home. We want you to imagine Tintin climbing ah. up a tree. So Climbing up a tree. Here, see his, yeah. his his quiff here is forward. Uh huh. Yep. Okay. He climbs up the tree, and then there he is. Um, for those at home that are um, listening to this, you guys can hear him here jumping. Now he's in the car, <laughs> and it's flicked to the back, and it's because of the wind of the car, and you can all hear that in that panel there. Yeah, <laughs> but that's 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 pretty amazing that it happens midway through a comic. It's not like the start of a new comic. It's like it's like Hergé, the the creator and the illustrator of Tintin, did that in one panel and went, "Oh, that looks good." I think and so. Just went, well, I'll that's just what leave I think that. Happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And do you know what's amazing about what you just showed us? There's a little something in that comic which is what absolutely exploded Tintin into the masses of Europe. And it, and it was a very specific thing that you might not have noticed as we were all just looking at these cartoons. Well, which did you is... notice at home, anyone? <laughs> Write in if you spotted the moment that Dan was I mean, the, the four of us is what I'm talking about. And what it was is that this is 1929. This is the same year that Popeye was invented, by the way. Um, so this is, and you know, it's years before Superman and Batman. This is really old school comic books. What they have in these drawings are speech bubbles. Right. And Europe did not have speech bubbles at this point in their oh, comics. Wow. They were over in America, but they were a completely new idea to certainly Belgium and, let's say, surrounding countries. I don't know about the UK specifically. Luxembourg. Possibly Luxembourg. <laughs> um, and, um, the Netherlands. The Netherlands. Yeah. Let's go there. Yeah. And I read a great biography, or rather I read a few pages from a great biography uh, by Harry Thompson about Tintin saying that basically his words in these speech bubbles were treated as if they were carved on tablets of stone. They became quotes and they became something you would remember as a result of these Ooh. speech bubbles. And that is why Tintin exploded. So, sorry, are we claiming, I would say at the moment for me, the invention of the speech bubble is up there with the invention of the concept of walking a plank. Um, I don't know if it's getting kind of... <laughs> he didn't invent it. Einstein. Invent well, it. exactly. He didn't even invent it. And it's not... No. It didn't independently appear, did it? It wasn't like, oh, wow, how weird. They've got these in America. Presumably, they just read a comic in America and thought, well, let's start doing that. Is that right? No, but do you remember when OK Go did their first video on treadmills and you barely even heard the music? You were so busy watching yeah. this innovative video. <laughs> yes. That's what it was. I couldn't it was tell like, you what and... the song is. Exactly. Oh, exactly. the treadmill song. What? The treadmill song, exactly. What a that's, relatable that's... for future generations <laughs> comparison. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in like 
300 years, everyone will be talking about, you know how we all do those treadmill dances now? Yeah. yeah. You know how everyone does them? Well, guess who did them first? Yeah. It was exactly. Yeah. Uh, that book, by the way, the Tintin in the Soviet countries or whatever it is, uh, I have that as well. But if you go to the Tintin shop in London, they'll only sell it to you under the counter. Oh. No. Yeah. So I went to, um, it was my tin anniversary and I thought I'd buy my wife some tin tin stuff. Uh, and she's <laughs> Russian. So I thought I'd buy the Soviet Tintin book and I went and it wasn't anywhere. And I didn't really know enough about Tintin that I knew it existed, but I assumed that it was maybe really rare. And I said, oh, do you have this book? And they went, yeah, well, we keep it under here now. And since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they don't put it on display anymore. In no that way. Shop. Yeah. Wow. God, Isn't that that's amazing? So weird. That's incredible. So you felt like you were buying comic book porn. Is <laughs> it quite exciting? Um, <laughs> they gave me in like an unmarked paper bag. Yeah. Do you know what's crazy? So 1929 is when Tintin debuts. By 1930, the comic is so massive that Hergé was invited to meet the um, Empress, who was the ex Empress, I guess, Zeta of Austria Hungary at the time. And when he arrived he arrived by train and there was just huge crowds of people there to meet not herge specifically but tintin because they hired an actor to be tintin who was an unknown kid who didn't have the right color hair and he was mobbed and not only did he not have the right color hair he also couldn't quite keep the quiff up so herge had to keep this little like little um tin of oily grease oh hair God. grease oh. Under i his thought you were going to go something about mary about it there dan for a second <laughs> oh jesus <laughs> tintin had to ejaculate every 30 minutes like those poor goats like the goats, he had to have he, someone yes. else's testicles implanted into him <laughs> exactly blistering yeah. barnacles tintin <laughs> But yeah, so they came off this train and Tintin, the kid, was mobbed and he was he was ripped away and Hergé had to go and chase him and bring him back. But it was like One Direction. Yeah, right. Um, if wow. you remember them. Poor guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. And in fact, you said you gave a famous Tintin quote there, James. Blistering barnacles. Blistering barnacles. Indeed. It's Captain Haddock, right, who says that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, frequently. And... This leads to quite an interesting thing about translating Tintin into English, because obviously it was originally written in French. I was reading an interview with Leslie Lonsdale Cooper, and she was one of the two main translators of Tintin from French into English, and she was doing it for 30 years. But she said one of the great challenges is fitting the words exactly into the speech bubbles, because you get exactly the same images. Uh, mm. But I don't, you know when you hear a French announcement on a tannoy, and then you hear the English one, and the French one always goes on about five times longer, Mm. so i don't know how she was compressing that but blistering barnacles was one of the things that she came up with as a translation of actually me sabor i think it was in french which means a thousand portholes he's from belgium though isn't he so Mm. yeah they they speak speak french speak french in half of belgium they do um it's supposedly based on a frenchman wasn't he tintin uh robert sexay Yes. Uh, That's a good name. (laughs) It's a great name, isn't it? Robert Sexy. He was a uh, French journalist and apparently he looked a bit like Tintin. He went on adventures to the Soviet Union, to the Democratic Republic of Congo and to the US in the same order that Tintin does those books. Uh, But Hergé always said, Tintin, c'est moi. 
So he always claimed that Tintin was based on himself, but ah. we think he might have been inspired by various different journalists. There was another theory that Tintin and all the characters were based on the family members of Hergé, and he denied it later in life. He said, no, 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 it's nothing to do with them. But let me just quickly tell you about his family. Um, there was his younger brother, Paul, who had a round face and a quiff. There was his dad, Alexis, who was a clumsy man who had a twin brother called Leon, who lived nearby <laughs> and the two of them would go for walks and they would wear identical bowler hats oh, and carry yeah. identical canes <laughs> singing in unison as they did his dog snowy uh who originally had the name milo in french uh who does also have the, share name, the name who's sorry rather yeah. who does have the name milo in french shares that name with herge's first girlfriend Yes, but oh. that's no. Oh. Yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people have suggested. Are you saying something rude? But Harry Thompson points out that at the time it was considered to be a great crime if you were a young boy hanging out with the opposite sex. Certainly, if you were depicting that in comics, and so the only way he could represent this person who he was very fond of was to put her as a dog in there. Otherwise, yeah, he would have gotten right. a lot of trouble. What right. what kind of weird excuse maker for the fact that Hergé. <laughs> put pretty much zero women in all of his comics were you reading oh we weren't allowed to include women in comic books back then. <laughs> they had to be dogs they had to come in disguise he just That's didn't right. put any women characters in it is a bit of a bit they're of hard a to draw hard to draw women aren't they? That's, that's not true draw. what about uh <laughs> bianca castafiore the opera singer she's a huge character in the, in the you're in right the she's she and is she's the, a heroine character. as well yeah that's true no you're right he had one he had bianca that is true and he did have the dog who maybe was based on his girlfriend but also <laughs> weirdly the person james mentioned sex there he had a travel companion called milu as well mm. so it might have been him. oh wow. no way yeah have you guys read what is apparently the best tintin and i haven't read it i'm ashamed to, ashamed to say uh, but tintin in tibet people seem to say Mm. Um, I'm guessing. Have you read yes. that, Reese? Yes. So that's that's um, that's my favourite. I mean, I've I've let people Is it? know that. I yeah. I think I remember back. It might still be there. On uh, it used to be on one of the social medias. You put down your favourite book, uh, and I just always put Tintin in Tibet. <laughs> oh, well, you've got such good taste. That was his favourite. You probably know this. That was Hergé's favourite as well. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. No, I didn't yeah. know that. That's awesome. Um, just and it because was... it's got a Sasquatch in it as well, that's why. Uh, oh, it? yeah, of course, yeah. that's why it's your favourite. I thought you liked it for the great philosophical undertones and the exploration of kind of Buddhist theology, but it's it's the Sasquatch. No, I've, I've never read it. I just I just flick through and, and go straight to the Sasquatch and look at the pictures. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> well, it makes Tintin the only fictional character to have received the Light of Truth Award from the Dalai Lama. So this oh, is like the best honour that the Dalai Lama amazing. can bestow. And yeah. it's to anyone who improves public understanding of Tibet, which is questionable if they did chuck a Sasquatch into the storyline. But yeah, the Dalai Lama gave Tintin this amazing light of truth. What's well, a Yeti, you know? Mm. It's yeah. A yeti. Anna, yeah, it's a Yeti. Yeah. It's perfectly it's correct. It is. Tibet. You're right. It, and it's, he's a good guy. Like he saves them. So really? I love it when that happens. Yeah, there's, there's, it's, a good, it's a great book. Does the Dalai Lama believe in yetis? Do you know, Dan? If anyone knows, you would I would say so. Yeah, so he has alluded to a belief. Um, Unfortunately, the person he alluded that belief to was Brian Blessed, so I'm not sure (laughs) if we can 
trust Brian's oh reporting. God. But he, when Brian was looking um, to climb to Mount Everest and obviously looking for yetis along the way, he had a uh what's it called an audience with the dalai lama and he met him they they apparently did some boxing together um brian took a walk with him in the wood he saw him revive a headless dead snake back to life and then they talked about yetis and he suggested that yeah that they are real so okay, yeah that a headless sounds... dead snake back to life <laughs> what did he do just pick it up and wobble it uh, look it's back, <laughs> it's back. oh my god <laughs> you're hey you're just wobbling that no, it's alive! It's alive again! He was doing it like the thumb trick where you make it go, hey, yeah. look at that! <laughs> well, here's the other thing, too, I'll say about the hair, mm-hmm. the haircut on Tintin. Um, oh, yeah. Think about when you do find your, your do. You know, when you, you, you're young or whatever, maybe in your 20s, you, you're playing with it, you're sorting something out, and you go, right, that's me. Quite often, not everybody, but a lot of people will... will keep that hairdo for their entire life. And so that mm. kind of fits in when you think about that mm. because yeah. even even when you lose your hair or it goes grey or whatever, you know, you go into your, your, your later stages of life, you've still got that same hairdo you had when you were in your uh, early 20s. That was a really good point. Uh, there was a thing, wasn't there? There was a, um, a scientific paper written about Tintin, which was when the first book was written, he was supposed to be 14, and by the time the last book was written, he must have been about 60 because um, Hergé was writing them for so long. Right. Uh, but he was 60 years old, never had to shave. None of his hair's <laughs> fallen out. Yeah. Um, he's still got those boyish features. And according to these scientists, they reckon he suffered from hypopituitarism oh. um, due to repeated blows to the head in some of the early books. Oh, wow. And does that um, so stop was, you aging properly? Yeah, it means you never go through puberty. I see. Oh, nice. Poor guy. He's got sort of an inverse to what most middle-aged men have, where he's bald all around the middle of his head, and then he's got lo- <laughs> just lots of hair in the middle. And I'm looking at... James has actually brought a Tintin doll. Oh, you have a Tintin, yes. To this, yeah. to this episode, another visual feature that will be lost on our audience. But... It looks like a mohawk from here. It really yeah, does. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh no, yeah, no, he that's... does have hair. Sorry, when you turn it round. Yeah, he's... it does. Yeah, it's just does. from the front he looks bald. I'll just say one, one final thing is that that he he really didn't like Tintin at the end, much the way that Arthur Conan Doyle got sick of his creation of Sherlock and he threw him off a cliff and, and killed him. Off a waterfall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, arguably, it's just a wet cliff waterfall, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> Only because I went there a few weeks ago. To <laughs> Did the Reich- you? To the Reichenbach really? Falls, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Would you wow. say wet cliff is an accurate description? <laughs> <laughs> so he, um, he really didn't like Tintin at the end and he was quite sick of him. And so the final Tintin book that Hergé was working on up until the point of his death was a book called Tintin and Alf Art. Mm. And all we have is the sort of rough sketches of it. But the final pain that he got up to, the final bit of the story, was having Tintin covered in liquid polyester and being sold as a work of art. And we that's the cliffhanger. We don't know what happened. Does he die? Does he survive? Tintin is like uh, like Woody from Toy Story, left on a cliffhanger. We'll never know. Mm. Oh so do you mean wow. he was put in like a work of art, like a Damien Hirst kind of thing? Yes. Is that the idea? Yeah. Knowing exactly. Tintin as I as I do, I would say he'd probably escape from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But his his god might have turned him against that, right? Like Hergé was, who knows what he was going to do there? 
We just don't know. We don't know. Reese, it's it. It's right interesting. It. Uh, yeah, I will. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? They these people that play also when you think of actors that play these um, characters that are so loved, and they get sick of them as well. I was just thinking of Harrison Ford with Han Solo. Mm-hmm. Oh, does he, he not like? What, did he not like Hans by the well, end? Well, he he said he'll come back to Star Wars, but he wanted the characters to die, which is a spoiler. I said that, but at least that's if you haven't seen that one. It came out a few years ago now. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> and then the whole James Bond dying in that last Bond that that Daniel Craig. Oh, that's a bit more fresh. That's a bit more fresh. <laughs> It reminds me of uh, that character, Anna Karenina. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if you've... <laughs> okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that for over 50 years now, the author of A Nearly Complete History of the Moose in New Zealand has been looking for moose in New Zealand, despite there being no moose in New Zealand. <laughs> or is there? Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, or is there? Is there? No, there isn't. Well, there could be. There is. Could there be? There All could. Right, well, talk to us Why about... Why would he not be looking? Is it quite a short <laughs> book? It sounds like there's not much to put in this book right now if there are no Moose in New Zealand. Are you kidding me? No, there's plenty in this book, and it's not his only book. He's written a, a, a bunch of books. He's written A Wild Moose Chase. He's... This guy is a legend of New Zealand. Yeah, I knew you'd like that, James. (laughs) Um, This is a man called Ken Tustin, and he has been in the national parks in New Zealand, in Fiordland, looking for moose because there was moose back in the 1920s, 30s, when they were introduced. And there's your clincher. (laughs) There was moose. So it's not like, oh, he's going to look for fairies and I hope there's some there. You know, there there was moose put there. They'll all be dead by now, those ones. It's 100 years ago. It's a little well, no, thing so, called I... mating. Oh, is that? <laughs> yeah. Go down to the sea, get your toes wet, come and meet me on a wet cliff, mate. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'll blindfold yeah, okay. you. <laughs> is that someone blowing? <laughs> no, it's not. It's just this, the wind. All right, get your ID out. <laughs> Show us your twerks. Here we go. And mating. So this was okay. So um, I I got the uh, the decade slightly wrong. This was in 1910. And what it was is that New Zealanders basically in 1910 wanted something to hunt and they had no natural land mammals of that size. And so moose were introduced basically to rectify that. So initially the moose really adapted well to the surroundings, but then red deer were introduced into the area and that changed the whole food chain so much that by 1952, so there was a good, you know, 40 odd years that they were around, the moose population really dwindled and then basically by 1930 disappeared altogether. But then in 1952, one was caught on camera. So there's tw- there's a 20 odd year period where mm. people thought they were extinct. Mm. And then suddenly, boom, here is a moose. Mm-hmm. And that is why this guy says there may be more moose because moose are really good at hiding. Yes. <laughs> they are, no, they're not. They are, they are really, are. they're really hard to see. They're huge. Moose. I know. They got but they big actually, antlers. I know, I know. But this is a huge national park. You know, it's really hard to spot is one. Um, a moose could be standing in a in a field a hundred yards away and you won't see it. 
<laughs> wow. They do get they get hit by cars a lot, don't they, Moose? Like that is a big problem in Canada. And is that because no. of their this invisibility that they can? Well, that on must off. be right. Yeah. yeah, because they they've got this mystical ability. They can stand still for a long time. And one of their, I think one of their. <laughs> Look, if you can just take this seriously, <laughs> one of their, um, you know, like a, a, a security measure. Uh, uh, defense mechanisms? Against, there Very you go. Good. Those are the terms. I knew you'd get there. <laughs> uh, is to, you know, like um, quite, a, quite a lot of animals use that where they just freeze. Like the goats. Thinking, and it's always, yeah, well, no, that's a different one. That's, you know, but that, well, kind of. But that's there. Yeah, that's a gene anomaly. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of some other animals that do it, do the old freeze um, a like few a bugs. rabbit and headlights. They would rabbit and headlights. And mules, one, but that's particularly... mules do that definitely. I think yeah. when they they just freeze when they can't deal with a situation. I think so. Yeah. Like a possum, some t- they would kind of pr- pretend to be dead. That's no, I think all of the examples you've given so far are incorrect. Okay. But <laughs> I'm to help. There are some <laughs> bugs and things out there that would just. I think. Okay, here's one: the stick insect. Because I saw it yesterday. Okay, and a frozen wait, stick wait a insect. Minute. So. The thing is, I used to have pet stick insects as a child, and they never moved, ever. It wasn't that as soon as they were in danger, they stopped moving. They just stayed No, that's defense mechanism. Oh, they were scared of me. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So I've had one, I had one on my uh, steering wheel the other day. (laughs) (laughs) This is back in New Zealand when I was in the the rural property. (laughs) And uh, I I went to grab my steering wheel to, to, to drive, as you do. And there's a, there's a sticky on there. And I went, oh, come on, mate. Because if my hands need to be there, he was in the two position. Because, oh. you know, you go for 11 and two. It's <laughs> the worst And uh, went, I grabbed the 11. And I always grabbed the left first. Grabbed the 11, go in for the two. Oh, there's a sticky there. And I says to him, come on, mate. And, I, and he just, he, honestly, he see him looking at me. I'm on the right-hand side of him. No probs there. But he's not moving. And I come in slowly, I'm co- and I even told him, coming in with the hand, buddy, coming in, <laughs> this, you're on my two position, and nothing, just absolutely frozen. So in the end, I just picked him up, and uh, he made out like he was a stick the whole time. I even... <laughs> <laughs> come to think of it, it might have been a... Poor, poor stupid stick insect, because I, I see what you're saying now. You're saying animals that are camouflaged to their environment freeze, but he's not a steering wheel insect, so it would be good if you could know as an animal that the thing you're sitting on yeah, looks nothing like. Yeah, it's not like. what you You look nothing like it, yeah. I mean, chameleons, they're the other ones. that Lizards in general will, will freeze or, or mm. really dart away, but lizards are the ones that will, will freeze as a, as a mechanism. So let's go back to what what... What was your fact, Dan? What are we talking about? <laughs> Moose. We were talking about oh, mooses. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And so, hey, this is pretty cool. We wrote a book years ago, Reese, uh, where there was a New Zealand professor called Neil Gemmel who had gone to Loch Ness and he had used a new form called eDNA to try and sample the waters of Loch Ness to see if the monster may exist. And so eDNA seems like quite an obvious thing that you would use in order to try and find the moose because you could go there and if the moose had been let's say around a little stream Mm -hmm. or a pond and if it had been sipping from it in the last 21 days neil would be able to use this device to then take extracts out and say ah there's moose dna in there that means they're alive yeah so I actually DM'd him on Twitter and I, I asked him, you know, is this is this a thing? Would you be up for doing it? And he said, it's so weird. I actually met Ken. I met this guy oh, wow. who's been looking for moose. Wow. Yeah. And he met him 
when he went back to Loch Ness to deliver the results of his findings about the water that he took from Loch Ness, and Ken happened to be there on holiday, and they met at Loch no Ness way. to then Amazing. discuss looking for the moose. That's so Actually, I'm acting like it's a massive coincidence, but where is Ken going to holiday? It's obviously going to yeah, be yeah. Loch Ness, isn't it? <laughs> where are these two nutters that you've happened to have heard of going to see each other? <laughs> How dare you? So is, is he going to do it? Well, he, he talks about it. So he said, um, what did he say? He said, Ken and I have kept in touch and the plan was to jump on board with him next time he found some sign of moose. But there's been little found in the past few years. Still remains a possibility. We've surveyed quite large sections of Fjordland and do reasonably broad biodiversity surveys, setting baselines and looking for various things. Endangered birds, some species that are presumed to be extinct. Um, and of course, moose. Uh, so far, there is no evidence of those. However, there's been a hugely exciting thing for Ken that happened in 2020, which is that a kid, well, I say kid, he's a teenager. Um, and uh, when I say teenager, he's in his 20s. <laughs> and uh, he was on a flight. He was a guy called Ben Young, who was in a helicopter flying over Fjordland, doing some surveying, and he saw a moose. Mm. He oh, saw yeah. the moose. Now, really? here's the thing. Here's the thing. He's a Canadian who used to work with moose. There you go. He knows what a moose we looks like. We all know what a moose looks like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but, no, but Canadians really know. Canadians <laughs> really know. Yeah. He was specifically a former moose hunting guide in Canada. I still go. Listen, James, he would really know. Reese, you're the okay. one who just told us a Canadian could be standing 100 feet from a moose on, in a plain <laughs> meadow and not see it. So. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, normally, but this guy was a trained moose yeah. looker, wasn't he? He's a trained moose looker. Yeah, yeah. it's. He's I have to say, it's not. It obviously is not the maddest idea. They were there, like you say. It is a big place, yeah. and um, sometimes these things come to fruition. So there's another really great kiwi animal. Uh, animal in New Zealand, the takahe, which I think are pretty rare. I doubt. Have you seen takahe? I think they're quite rare, aren't they, Reese? Yes, they're they're rare. Nice, for sure. nice looking, very nice looking birds, what, though. What kind of oh birds? Yeah, okay. they're the largest bird in like the rail family, so like coots and moorhens, but much bigger. Very beautiful blue green feathers, huge red beak that goes all the way up over their foreheads. They can't fly. But anyway, we thought the Takahe was extinct by about 1900. So I think the first sighting by Europeans was 1849. Obviously, the Europeans captured it, roasted it, ate it. They sort of went quite quickly extinct. And then there's a guy called Jeffrey Orbell, who when he was a kid, his mum just showed him a picture of one, I think, in a childhood book. And he got a hunch as a child. I bet that's still out there. And he spent his life kind of reading up on them. And he was, you know, he was a doctor. I think he was a, an eye doctor. So he was a legit, had a job. Um, well, he knew how eyes work, <laughs> so he'd be perfect exactly. for looking for things. Exactly. He knows how they really work. <laughs> he could, he could he really, really see. Knows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he took his expert eyes out on this 1948 expedition. And he, they went up this mountain and, you know, these things haven't been seen for 50 years. And they sat by a little bit of water and two of them just walked straight into their nets. These lovely Boom. little birds wow. waddled in wow. and we discovered and now they have them. I think they're only about 300. They're very unusual, but... Yeah, they're very endangered. Yeah. Uh, but look, there you go. I mean, that's just happen. one example of how animals, and don't forget, you know, the more intelligent they are, they know we're around. They know that they're 
endangered. There's only a small group of them, and they hide and they worry and they at their their survival instinct is their main feature. Mm-hmm. And so they are doing whatever it can take because otherwise they could be caught, they could be shot. We only think it from a human capacity of how how would we hide, how would we stay alive. But we're nowhere near as good as animals in the natural environment of the forest at, at, at staying alive. Yeah, you're right. A yeah. moose, that's, that's ingrained in its system, isn't it? Get away. Yeah. Um, just back to the Fjordlands very quickly. I just want to give a quick shout out to a legend of the world of ornithology. Um, he was part of the Ornithological Society of New Zealand, uh, joined in 1957, a guy called Ron Jack Nilsson, who very sadly passed away October 26, 2022. Um, he was a legend of his field, and he spent, much like Ken, many, many years looking for an elusive, supposedly extinct species of bird, which are called the South Island Coca have you heard of that reese the south island coca-co mm-hmm. um oh yeah we found a... those this year <laughs> yeah in november wasn't it yeah what? yeah it was the first of november yeah. last year yeah when did he die <laughs> <laughs> october 26th oh no oh god that is that is a so close yeah um but they... no seriously what, what what how do you spell the bird name K-O with a line above the K, yeah. the O, sorry. K-A-K-O. So Coca-Co. And it's a bird that hasn't been seen for many, many years. Um, people occasionally have supposed sightings, but no one has properly confirmed it. No one has a photo. And if anyone in New Zealand in that region is listening, there is, at least there was when this paper was written, a $10,000 reward for any photographic proof of the South Island Coca-Co. There's quite a, lot of, quite a lot of money to be made, isn't there, if you can find these things that don't exist? Oh, it's not yeah, the easiest way, prob- probably, to pull in a decent salary, a reliable salary. If you tell your partner, you know, what, I'm going to quit my job because I've heard lots of money to be made. You're nagging me too much. I'm going to get my books and I'm going to go and find the Coca-Cola. <laughs> okay, hon. I'll see the you. The age-old story. <laughs> Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can all be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James? At James Harkin. Reese, Please don't contact me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I said this last time. I haven't got time to read all your messages. And Anna? Uh, you can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are there. Do check them out, but most importantly, go and watch the entire series of Our Flag Memes Death, Reese's brilliant pirate sitcom. The entire series is up now to watch on the BBC iPlayer. It's an absolutely awesome series. Um, Reese, thank you so much for being here. And for the rest of you, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>